at the root cause through all the studies that have been done over the last couple of decades, the main connection to why we have the highest perinatal mortality rate is racism. It's sexism. Hello, my name is Chigo. And I'm Kit. This is Health Class, The Untold Lessons, a podcast that combines personal stories and factual deep dives on the healthcare experiences of marginalized communities in the U.S. It's our hope that this project creates a community of listeners that learns from and heals one another while illuminating ways for our healthcare system to improve. Views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not take the place of medical advice. Today, we are going to talk about birthing while Black. Black families face a disproportionate number of pregnancy-associated death in the U.S. We wanted to learn more about why this disparity exists and demonstrate that its roots go beyond pre-existing health or environmental conditions to the different treatment received by Black birthers in our healthcare system. We also wanted to look into different systems of care and review the concept of reproductive justice and create room for hope and positivity. Although the personal stories shared on the episode end happily, we offer a trigger warning as we will be talking about death, neglect, and racism. Now on to our fast facts. What are some of the health concerns that come up during the reproductive and birthing process? Common health concerns can involve the mother's health, the baby's health, or both. It can include anemia, preeclampsia, preterm labor, or even miscarriage, to name a few. What is maternal mortality? The World Health Organization defines a maternal death as a death that occurs while pregnant or within 42 days of the end of pregnancy from any cause related to or aggravated by the pregnancy, but not from accidental or incidental causes. How big of a problem is maternal mortality in the U.S. and abroad? The U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries. As of 2017, there were 17.3 deaths for every 100,000 births, roughly 700 deaths per year, and this number has been steadily increasing for the U.S. Here, there are 10 additional maternal deaths for every 100,000 births than there were back in 1987. Globally, maternal deaths are declining. However, the numbers remain very high in lower-income and lower-middle-income countries. In 2017, there were more than 800 maternal deaths every single day. Two-thirds of maternal deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa. When do most maternal deaths occur? Most maternal deaths occur sometime after delivery, while a third occur during pregnancy and 17% occur during birth. According to the CDC, about 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. Does the U.S. lack the appropriate medical professionals to address this issue? Possibly. While the World Health Organization compared 11 wealthy nations, the U.S. had the lowest overall supply of midwives and OBGYNs at 12 per 1,000 live births. OBGYNs are also overrepresented in the U.S. maternity care workforce relative to midwives when compared to other wealthy countries. What's the difference between a midwife and a doula? Midwives are key care providers during birth that meet a wide range of clinical needs. They sit with childbirth and provide care during the postpartum period, while placing a priority on the natural reproduction process and relationship building. Doulas are less clinically focused than midwives and primarily build a relationship with the birther to provide mental, physical, and emotional support before, during, and after pregnancy. Why do we lack birth workers like midwives and doulas? The lack of birth workers is a reflection of what our healthcare system values. 
For example, midwives are not covered in many health insurance plans. Even when a midwife is covered, it's possible that not all of their services are, such as home birthing, which is illegal in multiple states. Doulas are even less likely to be covered by insurance. Even those who have insurance coverage might not be able to find these providers. Finding a birth worker who shares your experience can be even harder when less than 2% of midwives are Black. Where did this decreased value for birth workers come from? The professionalization of medicine pushed both women and Black people out of the field despite a long history of Black women as birth workers. The informalized nature of birth work led to evolving independently of formalized obstetrics, which became healthcare of choice for affluent white communities and created the norm we see today. Midwifery-led care models have been shown to provide care that is comparable to, or sometimes even better than, that provided by OBGYNs. How are different racial communities impacted by the maternal mortality crisis in the U.S.? Black birthers experience higher pregnancy-related mortality rates, or PRMRs, than all other racial ethnic populations. According to the CDC data from 2014 to 2017, Black PRMR is 42, meaning 42 deaths for every 100,000 live births. For American Indian Alaskan Natives, the PRMR is 28. For Asian or Pacific Islanders, it is 14. For whites, it is 13. For Hispanics or Latinx, it is 11.6 deaths per 100,000 live births. This means Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women, regardless of income, education, and region in the U.S. Is this disparity present in other developed countries? Yes. In the U.K., where people have universal health coverage, maternal deaths were five times more likely among Black women in the pre-pandemic period and two times more common among Asian women. What conditions do Black people experience more during pregnancy? Black birthers are more likely to experience pregnancy-related deaths due to cardiomyopathy, thrombotic pulmonary embolism, and pregnancy-related hypertensive disorders compared to others. It's important to acknowledge how external conditions may contribute to this, but the fact that some health conditions are overrepresented in Black populations is a sinister reflection of systemic racism, oppression, and weathering taking a toll on our bodies. Does it all boil down to pre-existing conditions? No. Even if we can control for pre-existing conditions and income and environment and education, differences in death are still glaring. A 2007 study compared multiple sets of national birth data to see how women with the same condition fared during and after pregnancy. The study found that Black women with the same conditions are still two to three times more likely to die than white women, a statistic that has probably gotten worse in recent years as mortality rates have widened. This indicates that the unequal health experiences and treatment Black birthers face extends to our healthcare institutions and practitioners. Next, we'll hear from Joelle Arvea, a lawyer, adjunct professor, race and gender strategist, womanist writer, and full circle doula. Joelle is founder and leader of Indigo Birthings, a service that supports all genders during all stages of pregnancy, including prenatal, abortion, miscarriage, pregnancy, labor, and postpartum. Here is our conversation with Joelle. So Joelle, tell us a little bit about yourself. What brings you joy? Hi. So, yes, uh, Joelle Arvea, I use the she series of pronouns, and 
I have learned more about what brings me joy during the pandemic, just because I thought it was many things that were associated to what I now realize capitalism. <laughs> um, but now being forced to be still and really become more minimalist as I have come to identify, I really enjoy food, preferably food that's home cooked. Um, I think I took that for granted before, even though I've been cooking for a long time and all of that, like I really, really find joy in the process of cooking, harvesting my own vegetables or herbs and using them in my, to my table. Um, I find joy in dancing, preferably in the nude or minimal clothing. Like, <laughs> okay. I just feel like it's such a beautiful experience and my like, liberating experience. And it's really helped me like reconnect and love my body because I haven't always done that. So those are a few things. And of course, babies. Um, <laughs> I love watching and listening to babies. Mm-hmm. Those are a few. The list can go on and on, but... That is beautiful. I also enjoy dancing. That's something that I did a lot before the pandemic. And I haven't been able to get myself in the habit of dancing indoors and not in like a club. So mm-hmm. yes, I need pointers after this of how you dance. Yes, I highly recommend. <laughs> oh, cool. So um, you are a full spectrum doula. Can you tell us about your journey to become a doula and what it means to be a full spectrum doula? Yeah, so I actually identify as a full circle doula, not a full spectrum, um, because in a lot of ways they're similar, but for me they're different. So full spectrum, the way it's being used and even people are trained in it, it's very linear. It's very much like I support you from like conception all the way up until like you give birth and like sometime after postpartum or sometime during postpartum, I should say. Full circle, I think, really embodies my heritage, my backgrounds and um, the many cultures I come from and that I never stop being someone's doula in a way. Like it's a continuous cycle, almost like an infinity symbol of supporting folks through any stage of pregnancy, but also staying in community long afterwards. And so to this day, I still have people who their children are like five years old I have supported and I'm still checking in with them. We're in community. If they ever need anything, I'm always there. And along with being first full circle, I support people who have abortions, who terminate pregnancies, who have stillborn pregnancies, miscarriages, and may not even be pregnant, but still want some type of doula support. I help with that. And so it's a continuous cycle related to the reproductive system that really does center choice and body autonomy and to really ensure that no one feels alone at whatever stage. So it's a bit different than full spectrum. A lot of folks, it's just, I find that full spectrum is a bit more transactional, which some people may disagree, but it does feel very much like I'm with you for this amount of time along this continuum. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't much fluidity and circular motions involved in the exchange and reciprocal support of being a doula and having someone as a birther client. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like as a full circle doula, and since you're with them long after the pregnancy, how do you, how do you receive payment for that? Yeah. So for people who are like no longer um, immediate clients or birthers, it's usually me checking in with them. And so, or they'll reach out occasionally, but it's not an ongoing thing. And so we usually do like a barter exchange or they'll just say, I 
want to pay for your time. I want to spend, you know, this X amount of time discussing what I'm going through and we'll do that. Um, sometimes it's like, can I offer you a meal? Because that's all I can afford right now. Um, it's a bit more fluid mm-hmm. again in being compensated once we're out of that, pretty much out of the time period of when they have hired me. Um, so it's not necessarily still functioning as like their doula as like this is something you've hired me for it's more so like the community piece of just checking in and making sure everything is okay and um if they want to engage more with me they can and just making sure that they have someone so it really depends Mm -hmm. I guess not to put a lawyer answer to it but it, it depends and I want to still have that humanizing that human experience um with it because at the end of the day it's not really about the money for me anyway and yet I do still need to, you know, eat and pay my bills. So any way that I can have some type of an exchange or compensation that may not be the with currency is also welcome. Yeah, that's beautiful. Like, I love how it's fluid, it's community focused, and it works outside of what we expect in like a capitalist system of like bills and invoices and et cetera. So what drew you to this form of care? How, what was your journey? It was a long one and one I'm, I'm still revisiting because I didn't realize like how much I have been a doula long before I've been quote unquote trained. <laughs> so a little backstory for folks who may not know, like most doulas and midwives historically, especially in African diaspora communities, you weren't really trained per se. Like you didn't decide I'm going to be a doula or a midwife. You pretty much were an apprentice to someone in community who selected you or the community trusted you to actually take on this task. And so it was more of a, almost like a family tradition. Like if someone in your family was a midwife, at some point you might be selected to carry on that tradition and so on and so on. And I didn't realize this until I took my first doula training years ago that that was a common practice. And then I remembered um, one of my grandmothers doing that very thing. We didn't really talk about it. I was very young Um, But I do remember working with her in supporting pregnant people and watching her support other pregnant people in community. And then when I was about a teenager, around 16 or 17, there was someone I was working with who was pregnant and she was having a really hard time. And I kind of stepped in and began providing support that I had seen my grandmother do. And I didn't realize years later that was like, oh, that's what being a doula is. So I would provide meals for her, you know, give her breathing techniques, always check in, help her be an advocate for herself, but also be there for her and, you know, really combat any stereotypes that she would experience because she wasn't married. She was also young. And I feel like that was kind of one of the many seeds that was planted in my mind to go into this work uh, more intentionally. It seemed a bit more like default at the time because it just, because of seeing my grandmother, it was like just what you do. Mm -hmm it's not something that's considered like a job or profession. So that was the start. And then um, years later, I was connected to more midwives in Baltimore and it just re-sparked that interest in maybe pursuing an actual training and being a doula. So I've kind of been doing it ever since on and off. And then this year I finally launched my, my practice to actually offer it more readily um, through my other work and bridge and bridging those, those interests into one place. Cool. So it's long. It's a long journey. <laughs> Journeys, they tend to be long sometimes. Still ongoing. 
<laughs> yeah, it's still ongoing. It's still I'm still blooming and evolving, and it feels good to bring all of my areas of work into this one entity that's not a traditional doula practice, and it's actually more than that. So it, it feels good to be like creating something that doesn't exist yet and creating a job that doesn't really exist yet. So ongoing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that evolution of the doula practice and how it goes outside of even like the traditional um, expectations of a doula? Yeah. So Indigo Birthing really was created from a, a perspective of wanting to add in this layer of tangible changes using an anti-Blackness um, awareness lens, mm-hmm. as well as a productive justice. So that way we're not just providing hands-on support for like a pregnant person, but we're also providing spaces for other folks to unlearn right. these narratives and these practices. Um, we also are creating a shop and a store that is allowed allowing other folks to participate in their own healing process. Mm -hmm. And really I want it to turn into a collective so that it's more of a cooperative and less about just an individual transactional service here and there, um, but more community focused. And in a lot of ways, the way that we're building it is demonstrating and practice what like pretty much how pregnancies were protected and held in communities before. And so it's in combination with another cooperative I'm building called Brownstead, where it's we're using land to regenerate it and also create healthy spaces for folks who have had an abortion or are pregnant or whomever to have the birth experience they want to have. So it's mm-hmm. a bit more encompassing and it begins right. to tackle the issues that have made the U.S. one of the worst places to give birth in. Like right. it's beginning to actually create a model that is changing the environment so that way we can also determine have different birthing outcomes and remove stigma and just re-educate people about it and shift mindsets about pregnancy not being a medical crisis. Mm -hmm. So how will your new indigo birthing and your new collaborative directly address disparities in birthing care, especially among Black birthing? Well, one of the things that I find frustrating being in the birthing world is that there tends to be this focus on specific factors of like, oh, this is the issue. Like the reason why we have the highest perinatal um, mortality rate is because of poverty. Or the reason why the rate is so high is because people don't have access to good food or it's because we don't have black OBGYNs or whomever. Mm -hmm. And at the root cause of the mortality, um, perinatal mortality rate, through all the studies that have been done over the last couple of decades, the main connection to why we have the highest perinatal mortality rate is racism. It's sexism. It's not about not having a proper education. It's not about not being of a higher class because we have been studying pregnant people who do have a really, you know, have PhDs Mm -hmm. and they're making a lot of money and, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. they eat really well. They have all this access and yet the the rate has not changed even when we factor in other identities and other systems. The only thing that has remained the same is the inherent um, racism that is still present in this country. And so the best way we think to address it is to begin, one, illuminating racism in the birthing world, Mm -hmm. re-educating people about their bodies and autonomy so that way they're able to begin to unlearn um, what they have internalized as normal when it comes to massage noir, for example. And so with Indigo Birthings, we're specifically doing that. We just held a workshop 
on one the day. 17th. This week. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it was one day um, where we began to really start laying out like, what is this system? Because perinatal health, reproductive care, birthing work is not separate from any system. Like we can try to separate it out as like, oh, it's this, it's this little thing over here, or it's only for people who are pregnant. But really what is causing this mortality rate is that everyone that they are in contact with, everyone that they are around the communities that they're living in are also impacted or having an impact on their birth experience or their abortion experience. And it's causing stress from racism and sexism. It's causing other health factors that contribute to people dying Mm -hmm. um, before birth, shortly after giving birth. And so with Indigo Birthings and Brown said, we one are creating spaces to address some of the immediate needs that we have seen. So I'm working to acquire land now to have a safe haven for people who may be escaping an abusive relationship or they don't want anyone to know that they had an abortion and they need somewhere to stay for like a week or two Mm -hmm. while they recover. So that way they don't have to deal with shame or that stress. We're also Mm -hmm. just re-educating people about what this actually looks like in the birthing world and how it's not very different. Um, We're connecting people to things like food, to things like access and things like that. But really we're working on shifting narratives and providing space for people to actually process that. Because a lot of this work is focused on people being in their homes or by themselves and you can't really unlearn something if you're still going back to an environment that is hostile and created that stress that may be also racist and oppressive in the first place. And so we're working to buy land and pretty much start creating these safe havens that we think are necessary to begin addressing the mortality rate. So it's going to be a small drop, I think, in a large pond, but I hope that mm-hmm. it will start to force the birthing world providers to really check how they're providing care and to also empower pregnant people, not that they're not already empowered, but empower them even more to understand what's going on and to realize what their rights are. So that way they're not constantly being fed this narrative that steeps in anti-Blackness and white supremacy and feeling like they don't have a way to combat that. So how does indigo birthing work with racism and the white supremacy that exists in a lot of hospitals? in the country? So we don't only work with folks who go to hospitals, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, We also do this work for people who have home births or in birthing centers and things of that nature. So it really depends on who the provider is. But no matter who the provider is, I work closely with obviously the person who is pregnant. And I do have some contacts, depending on where the person is going to provide, to get care, to begin, you know, talking to them. Uh, and things of that nature. But really what I have found to be the strongest resource in advocating for those scenarios where you're rushed to the hospital and you're just trying to figure out what to do is the support system that the pregnant person has, whether it's a partner or a family member. I also work really closely with them because due to COVID, I can't always be attending a birth. So what, what I have been doing is providing coaching sessions for the partner or the support person who will be there so that way they know what they should and should not demand but what they should be looking out for what they should be listening for Um, we do a lot of research on the institution where they want to have birth if it is a hospital and we start asking a lot of questions I also will attend some of the appointments virtually with folks who begin like trying to see how this provider is and you know offer my advice 
and things of that nature. So it's, it's small and fractal, but it's having a positive impact on the person who is pregnant or having the abortion because it lets them know that I don't have to figure this all out by myself and I don't have to advocate for myself all the time. They can if they want to, but being able to have someone like myself or a partner or support person who also knows what to look out for and what to demand and how has been really beneficial to them in realizing that I'm, I don't have to rush. I don't have to move with urgency or just go along with something because this person is telling me to do that. So that's one of the ways that we do it, but it really depends on the support person, I would say, and beginning to teach them and coach them on how I would have approached certain situations to ensure that we're addressing anti-Blackness and white supremacy culture. Birth plans also help. So I do that as well. But it's, <laughs> I do walk them through the birth plans as well and make sure that there's, if they're accessible um, so that there isn't like any question of like, oh, I couldn't read it or it was too many words. So now we just use pictures. And so it's a bit easier for everyone to, you know, to not be able to say like, oh, I didn't know that's what you wanted. So that's why I didn't do what you asked. Like it's, we make it a little bit harder for them to deny a request. Mm-hmm. Joyo, how often are you interacting with individuals for whom you are the only person in their support system during their birthing process? Fortunately, not often. If anything, I have found that I'm the only person supporting people when they've had an abortion or a miscarriage, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because many times they are physically in community with people. Like they're living with family, right. they're living with their partner, and yet when it comes to the abortion or miscarriage, it they're left to their own healing and devices. And in that case, I am kind of the only person. It tends to be a bit more secretive for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm more so the solo support person in those private conversations around abortion or miscarriage. Less so when someone is pregnant and laboring, which I think is good. Absolutely. So how do you bring reproductive justice into the birthing experience? I think they're already connected. Um, and one thing I'd, I'd like to share that I didn't realize a lot of people don't know is that the reproductive justice movement and framework that we know now was started by Black women in like 94. And even before that, like Black folks of all ethnicities have been, you know, implementing practices around having safe abortions, around having safe pregnancies and laboring practices. Like we used to give birth in gardens and things like that. And so it's all connected. And I think the reason why I'm bringing at least more attention to it being connected is because so often folks think reproductive justice is only about having the right to an abortion when really reproductive justice is about having body autonomy to decide if you want to be a parent or not and to ensure that you're able to thrive essentially. And so with my work, having been a race and gender equity strategist for about 13 years, maybe 14 at this point, and seeing that all the systems that we try to separate are all connected through this lens of anti-Blackness and also just gender binaries, it's just a natural flow to bring in other aspects of reproductive justice into the birthing world because it is about making sure that folks have the outcomes they want to have, regardless of what we think. The whole point of the reproductive justice movement is to ensure that laws, policies, practices, whether implicit or explicit, at any level, communities, society in general, they all are able to guarantee access 
to this body autonomy. So whether that is access to abortion care, whether that is access to needs and a birthing center or to a hospital or to a home birth provider, all of those things are connected to the reproductive justice movement. Also, um, I've been educating some people about menstruation because that's a thing that comes up a lot in this world that's connected to reproductive justice and, and sexual health and trying to remove stigmas related to sexuality as it relates to um, bodies and not. And there's just so many mixed messagings that relate to reproductive justice in the birthing world that I think the more that we continue to show the layers and how they are very much alike, the better we can produce better outcomes. It, it does us a disservice to keep separating these types of movements when they're mm-hmm. impacting the exact same people for the exact same reasons. Yeah. When I think about reproductive justice, I think a lot about autonomy and people's right to do whatever they want with their body and also increasing their voice and advocating for themselves. So how do you encourage your patients or the people that you work with to advocate themselves during the birthing process? I think it all starts with just being in relationship with them from the beginning, because a lot of the birthers I work with, I'm realizing, again, they have normalized silencing themselves and normalized that they should know what to expect, or they've normalized just going along with whatever the doctor says. And so I think even before we get to that laboring process, just building relationship with them, carrying them through a birth visualizing exercise that I do with them, carrying them through, you know, just conversations about what do you actually want has been very helpful because they're not often asked that. If anything, they're told, you know, this is what you should want (laughs) and whatever Mm -hmm. states they're in, or they are told horror stories usually by people who had these horrible experiences. And so it, it frightens them and they're just like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll just go along with it. And so I think with the people I'm supporting now, it's been really great to see that evolution from our first conversation to now many of them are about to um, give birth in the next month or so. And they're very more, they're very much more comfortable in voicing what they want and what they don't want. Whether it's like, I want a greasy cheeseburger (laughs) before I go in, (laughs) or it's like, I don't want to be touched or I don't want an epidural. They're more forthcoming with that information now. And that's been really exciting to see. And I think it does just start with how I interact with them because they begin to realize that, oh, I do get to have a say. Like, I don't have to just go along with it. Or if I have a question, I can ask. Like, it shouldn't just be that I can't have what I want and that's it. Like, you need to explain why. That's great. So when you think about the future of birthing and especially in hospitals, how do you want it to change and how do you want it to improve? I'm thinking about like doctors and nurses and how we operate in the medical system so that we don't have as many deaths during Black birthing? Yeah. If anything, I would love to see us not give birth in hospitals okay. anymore because that's not, that's the only way. And it's been mm-hmm. normalized by white men who, you know, readily pushed out Black and Indigenous midwives at the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. because they wanted to, one, profit, and just the, the experimentation that's happened on black and brown bodies with people who mm-hmm. have vaginas is, is long lasting. And so because of that legacy of dehumanizing, forced sterilization, operating on these bodies as if they are disposable, 
there's this narrative that's been, again, just normalized through culture and society that hospitals are the only way because that's what these white men taught us, that they know what's best for our bodies. They know that, you know, these backwood black women, these like root workers, these, you know, priestesses and things, they don't know what they're doing. They're using backwards medicine. They demonize spiritual systems and practices and traditions. So that way, even folks who may be BIPOC, like black indigenous or a person of color, they've also internalized this notion that it's unsafe to give birth mm-hmm. unless you're in a hospital. It's unsafe to only have a midwife and a doula. And so what I would love to see is a shift back to having birth outside of hospitals. And if nothing else, laboring at home is a big thing. Like being able to labor in your own home has a tremendous positive impact on the birth experience that you have. I would also just love to see more doulas and more midwives of all genders really out here, like doing the damn thing and setting up birthing centers, setting up spaces that have access to tools that are used, you know, in the medical world and in hospitals if you need them. Like if there is an emergency or, you know, you have access to the medicines and things that you need, but it's in a more of a home environment. It's in a center that allows you to progress naturally instead of let's hurry up and get this done because I have another baby to deliver or I have to, this is not worth my time. I make more money by inducing. So let's just do that Mm -hmm. faster. So I would like to see that like a shift away from hospitals. I would like to see more options available regionally. I would like to see more options for people who have abortions to again, have a space to recover as they need to. And I I just want to see more of, just more of us present. Like, I think it's, I think everyone should be a doula. Like, I don't think it has to be, you know, your full-time job or it has to be, you know, what you do all the time. Because for years up until now, it was something I did on the side and it was usually pro bono. And that was that. It was just nice to have a resource, a resourceful person nearby that you could tap in case you were pregnant. And I like to see that more. I would like to see more folks just take the training. So that way, if you do come across someone who's in need of a doula, you're available and you don't have to do it all the time. Like, cause people are still having babies despite everything going on. Babies are still coming. And so mm-hmm. we need more people to offer the support, especially when we have our government shutting down more and more clinics, um, stripping funding from places, not allowing um, insurance companies to use insurance for midwifery or doula services. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a lot of a lot of barriers. And so the more of us that are available and willing to do it, even if it's like once a year or like it could be something really small. It doesn't have to be a full time commitment. It could have a tremendous impact on decreasing the perinatal mortality rate. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. So where where does one get started? So I would recommend Ancient Song is a great organization. There's lots of organizations. There's the Birthwell in Baltimore. I've done the Birthwell training. I've also done the SNC doula training with Mama Shafia Monroe, which was incredible. There's lots of doula trainings offered now, which is great. My high recommendation would be the, the three that I just named. Mm-hmm. Ancient Song, which I believe is based in New York. The Birthwell, which is based in Baltimore and SMC doula training with Mama Shafia Monroe. She's based out of Oregon, I want to say. And 
You can even just start by doing some research. I also work with people who want to be doulas to like just give them more insight on what to expect and like because it's annoying how much we now make being a doula like you have to have a credit an accreditation of some sort before Mm -hmm. you even need that so I think at any point you can be a doula even if you're not quote-unquote certified to do it and I think it just starts with beginning with why you want to become a doula and looking in your own area for people who are already doulas and midwives and talking to Mm -hmm. them and beginning to start that journey of understanding what it actually means to be one. And then from there, if you want to take the training, you can. They can be excessive, Mm -hmm. um, which is why I hate that it's become so much of an accreditation now. But it it can be worth it. And I know some of them offer scholarships. Absolutely. Thank you for the recommendations. So besides these three doula trainings, what are some of your favorite birthing initiatives that promotes Black birthing equity? There's a lot of initiatives that are very clear and intentional about being like trans and gender affirming and inclusive, which is great. And they're not, they don't put that same energy behind being anti-racist, which Mm -hmm. I think is problematic given the history, like the LGBTQ movements, especially like trans rights, all comes out of Black folks Mm -hmm. um, and Black histories. And so you can't really separate race and gender. And so... For anyone who's interested in these types of trainings to become a doula, I would pay attention to that. Like, do your research to see if this organization is just focused on one thing or if they actually do include a lens that addresses anti-Blackness and racism because it's it's important to have both. Like, it's not okay to only focus on one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people just really like to work in silos or they think that if they're gender affirming, they are also inherently anti-racist. And sometimes you have to be intentional. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I'm also seeing folks reclaim these practices. And I'm seeing a lot of this work, not that it hasn't always been there, but I'm seeing it become more popular in mainstream media, especially like Pateras in Mexico, um, Pateras in Colombia, all these places outside the U.S. who are also also like coming up and like saying like we are taking back these practices like the rebozo, for example, and other things that have been taken away. And so the more you tap into it, the more you'll start to see that, oh, there's someone in this area and this area who is doing anti-Blackness work, who is addressing racism and gender and, and all the phobias associated with this in a way that's actually impactful. <laughs> and that has what has kept me motivated. It's really a long way to go, but I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> me too. To get a personal understanding of this topic, we spoke with Shantae. Shantae is a mother of two, a 16-month-old and a one-month-old. Her son was born in the U.S. and her daughter in the U.K., We are excited to learn about Shantae's experience as a Black woman who has given both here and abroad and in both a private and public healthcare system. This is our conversation with Shantae. Welcome, Shantae, to our podcast. We've known each other for a few years. We met on Pop Farm and worked together on our community garden. So thank you so much for agreeing to interview for our Black Birthing episode. My pleasure. So introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. What brings you joy? Hi, everyone. My name is Shantae. I am a mother of two. That is something that brings me joy. I love being a mother now. It's hard work, but it is rewarding. I love doing everything like outdoors, 
as Chigo said, we met gardening. Um, so we both have like a love for like outdoors and just dirt and um, seeing change within the community. I also love doing things like hiking. Here they call it just going on walks and hill climbing. So we do a lot of that here in the Scottish Highlands. I do. I, I genuinely just enjoy um, just experiences with good people. Like I love connecting with people, whether that may be sitting outside, enjoying a glass of wine on the back porch in Baltimore or walking, hiking or something with friends or gardening with friends. So That's cool. Yeah. And from your hill climbing, it seems very beautiful from your Instagram posts. Thank you. The pictures don't do it any justice. I bet. (laughs) So tell us about your pregnancies. You have two children, Alex and Maya. Alex was born in the United States and Maya was born in the UK. So how were those pregnancies for you? You were there from the beginning of my Alex pregnancy. Yeah. That one was pretty easy. Um, I still just did like everything like gardening. I loved being pregnant. It was fun. People just kind of like pamper you and... Mm-hmm. Like shower with gifts, but I didn't really have any um, complications or anything. So I think I can say my pregnancies, th- my first pregnancy was smooth. My second pregnancy, I encountered a, a few different uh, bumps in the road, but nothing too serious, just pain. Okay. What kind of bumps were you or challenges were you experiencing with Maya? So I guess because I had uh, both of them so close together, um, I experienced like pelvic girdle pain. I think my pelvic floor wasn't really that strong when I gave birth to my second one. So I, I couldn't like walk some days. Mm-hmm. And then because of coronavirus, I couldn't like see a physio a, a physio here. So I kind of just had to like pay to see a chiropractor. But it was really painful. Some days I couldn't walk. Oh. Um, and I also had like sciatic pain. It was just so much. So at one point, like if I put pressure on like my right or left leg, it was just like a debilitating pain where I just, it was just, I think it's just literally from um, not recovering fully from my first pregnancy. Mm. That makes sense. Now, do you still have any uh, of the symptoms or did they just go away once you actually gave birth to her? Um, so I, so while I was pregnant, um, I still had like a one-year-old to like chase after and do everything. So I kind of just tried to, I, like when I walked, I had to wear like a, a pregnancy support belt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to, to the osteopath a few times, like a month, which is really expensive. So I kind of did things to heal it and I, I rested a lot. Right. So that kind of helped. Um, so I kind of had to get it under control while I was pregnant. Gotcha. But right now they, they definitely just emphasize doing pelvic floor exercises for the rest of your life. Mm. So For the rest of your life? Yes. Oh, what what do pelvic floor exercises look like? It's like uh, kegels and like pelvic tilts, like where you land on your back and you lift up your the bottom half of your body. But mainly, just say they just say like do lots and lots of kegels, which they say women should do anyway. Keep your exercises up. Yeah, and all the resources that you use when you were experiencing pain, like you said, you went to an osteopath and a chiropractor. Are those services traditionally covered under insurance? No, so here we are under the NHS, which is, of course, like a publicly funded health system. So everything is closed because of coronavirus. So you don't really get to see the GP if you need to or anything, unless it's an actual emergency. So physio people, they'll set up a phone call and they'll send you like exercises and videos and stuff, but they won't actually be there to like touch you or do anything. So you would get physio. I think you would get like maybe two sessions and then they would discharge you normally from the from the NHS, but because of a uh, coronavirus, we didn't receive anything. 
Um, so you just had to go out privately. But if you wanted to go to an osteopath or a chiropractor here, it wouldn't generally be covered. That's usually a private service that you have to pay for. So. Oh, okay. So how was that um, different from your experience birthing in the U.S.? Were there any things that like during your pregnancy you found that were not covered that made it harder or impacted your pregnancy in any way? You know, were the resources more accessible? What were the differences? Some of the main differences I can say about in the U.S. and the U.K. is that I feel like in the U.S. I was always at the doctors for something. Um, I feel like they were a lot more focused in the U.S. on the baby. And I feel like in the U.K. everything's focused a lot more on the mother. Okay. You don't really see a doctor or nurse in the U.K. unless you have problems. You only see a midwife. So when I found out I was pregnant in the the U.S., I kind of just like contacted my community clinic that I go to and they and I was seen by the nurse practitioner um, mm-hmm. who I did all my prenatal appointments with. And in the UK, when I found out I was pregnant, my GP connected me to a midwife. And that's what I think for the duration of my pregnancy. The biggest difference is like aftercare in the UK, in the US. Mm. If you have a reg- regular vaginal birth and no complications in the UK, you, you can be discharged after like six hours. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, wow. Um, in the US, you have to stay in for at least 48 hours in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like when you check yourself in the hospital in the U.S., it's kind of like checking into a hotel. Like, you know, you're going to get like really good service. Well, that, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a hotel. You just kind of like, okay, I'm here. In the U.K., because it's a publicly funded um, system, they tell you to stay home as long as possible because you'll be more comfortable at home. And then they also have wards here. So you won't necessarily have your own room You'll just be like on a ward and you'll be separated by a curtain on the floor with, with maybe like, I think up to six other women. But because of COVID, I think it was a maximum of four on a ward. Luckily, I didn't have to go on a ward. Mm-hmm. Another thing is um, in the U.S., I said I wanted an epidural. They gave me an epidural. I said mm-hmm. I didn't experience any pain. In the U.K., the midwife, I sat down, I did like a whole birthing plan with her and everything. And then you get to the hospital and nothing happens the way that you planned it because they tell you to come as late as possible. You need to call the hospital mm-hmm. before you come and tell them you're coming and they need to tell you, okay, is it okay to come? Versus in the U.S. Oh, wow. show up. Right. The hospitals are so much smaller. Like, it's not like a choice of hospitals you can go to here. It's just Aberdeen Maternity Hospital. That's where everyone here delivers their baby because it's only one hospital. Mm-hmm. Unless you do a home delivery or something like that. So in the U.S., my water broke around noon and then... Other people who had their first trial, they told me, like, don't go straight to the hospital. You have a certain, you have time. So go take a shower, go pack your bag. And then later in the evening, when I started feeling like slight contractions, I told them I wanted epidural. They gave me epidural in the U.S. Um, and then the baby came, I think, within 12 hours. Um, and I stayed in the hospital for two days. And then my U.K. experience was that I know when you have your second child, your labor probably lasts maybe three hours. You don't have the same amount of time normally that you have your first labor so i started timing my contractions i called the hospital they told me to come in when i was having about think five within like 10 minutes or something and they were less than at least 30 seconds so i called them i told them that i was coming soon so got to the hospital they were like oh you didn't tell us you were coming and i was like i called and i spoke to someone i was having really really bad contractions which i never felt before it just felt like really really strong prayer cramps they put me like in like a bed behind a curtain, like on like the triage ward. And then they sent someone back in like five minutes. She asked me how my contractions were. She took my vitals and then she left. 
for like, I think 10 minutes, she came back and they gave me some water and then told me like, oh, I'm going to check you in a second. Meanwhile, I'm having like stronger contractions as this goes on. And they tell you to wait to the last minute to come. Not the last, last minute where they were really, really close together. I know if I wanted like an epidural, I would have to come in with enough time to actually get that administered. So she left and told me to go empty my bladder and, I, and like came back maybe like 20, 25 minutes later. And I had to like tell my husband, can you like go get her? Like she, she said she was going to check me to see how far I was dilated, but she just never came back. Um, you can hear in the background because you're kind of just separated by a curtain that it was someone calling in and she was like on the phone being hysterical and she was in pain. Meanwhile, I was in a lot of pain. However, I was like doing breathing exercises and, and I was mm-hmm. trying to kind of managing my own contractions with normal breathing techniques and stuff. So I guess they figured I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I, I finally had to like move the curtain and like stand in the hallway and tell someone they need to come check me. So she finally returned and checked me. Meanwhile, the lady that was on the phone like came right in. They had a bed and they took her directly to, to like a room. I was there for like maybe I think 40, 45 minutes at this point. She finally checked me after I had to like yell because I was trying not to be rude to people because people mm-hmm. don't deserve that. They're just doing their jobs. But she wasn't doing a good enough job. <laughs> so she finally checked me and I was seven centimeters. I think I was a little bit more than seven centimeters. So then she, they uh, got me a bed and they took me up to the to a delivery room. And it was like, oh, this is a really nice delivery room. I guess it was a big room compared. I'm not, I'm from the United States where we, where every room is like qu- quite big. So I was just like, <laughs> but I was in so much pain at this point. I sat in there. It was, it was all, it was like one or two midwives and they were, and then it was one midwife because I guess she figured I would be there for like 30 minutes to an hour. And I was just telling her that, like, th- I feel the baby head is coming out right now. And she was like, okay, well, after you finish this contraction, just turn around and get on your knees. And so I turned around and I got on my knees and I, and she told me to let gravity help me and lean onto the back of the bed. Mm-hmm. So I did. I just turned around. And then the next contraction, she came out. <laughs> she came right out, like, I think two pushes. Okay. And she came out fully in her sack. So it was quite fast. So she didn't know that she was coming out that fast. So she had to run out of the room to get like other people mm-hmm. to back in and help. But I was so upset because I did not want to have a natural birth. Like that pain just makes you feel like your soul splits in half. Like mm-hmm. it's, it was the most painful thing ever. I mean, and I guess the human body doesn't really remember pain, but I was so upset with that triage because she took so long to check me. Yeah, it sucks that your birthing plan wasn't followed because from everything I read, like working with a midwife to have the birthing plan, like they're your advocate in the hospital and they make sure that it happened. So like the midwife that you're working with during pregnancy, was she ever at the hospital? No, she actually went on. Um, she was on leave that week that um, I had the baby, but she wouldn't have been there either. Anyway, she would have just visit me at home afterwards. So in the UK, after you have the baby. The midwife visits you every day for like 10 days and then they discharge you to what they call like the health visitor. And the health visitor stays with you and the baby until the baby goes to school. So when Alex came over to the U.S. when he was six weeks, we had a health visitor came and checks his weight in the house. Instead of you having to go to the hospital, she come, they come to your house like once a month to see the baby. And I guess more if the baby has any needs and they give you any referrals or anything that you may need. Um, your health visitor is there. You call her and you have problems with feeding or anything. But my midwife normally would come to the house every day after I'm discharged from the hospital. But she was on leave. So I had like a different community midwife come. 
So if like she wouldn't have gone into the hospital while you were giving birth, how is there any way to make sure your birthing plan is followed? Okay, so they have this app called Maternity Notes. That you download, so you fill in your birthing plan with her and maternity notes and the midwives in the hospital can access that so they can see everything that I put in there with my midwife. Okay. So they'll Before they do stuff, they'll ask you again. But they, at one point I was just sitting there like, can you give me anything? And she was just like, no, sorry, we don't have any time. You're already like fully dilated. So you just have to wait. So I was just sitting there. I was like, what is the point in a birthing plan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we follow. And the one thing I can say I appreciate about the UK experience is that the only thing I did want in my US birth plan was I wanted delayed cord clamping where they say like, you know, when the baby first comes out, you should leave the cord attached for like five minutes. It has certain benefits, but they, they do that all over the UK. Like mm-hmm. that's just a standard practice, which is easy to do. They didn't do that in the US. In the US, they like, I guess they said the baby's pressure was dropping. So they had to just deliver him. When they delivered him, they kind of just like, do you mind like skipping skin to skin so we can just check his vitals and everything? So they just wanted to do their job and get it out the way. So they kind of just took Alec as soon as he came off, of, came out of me and just mm-hmm. took him cleaned him up and checked his vitals. And, and then I got him maybe like 20, 25 minutes later. So the whole time I just pushed his baby out in the U.S., I didn't see him for like 25 minutes. Wow. In the U.K., they had to like break her, like use some type of key tool or something to like break her out of her sack because she was fully enclosed in her sack, which is called like an incalibre, which is supposed to be good luck because it's, it's very, very rare. Less than like one in 80,000 people have incalibres. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they ripped out of her sack and I like turned around from like my knee position, they just put her on me and they didn't weigh her or anything for like the first six hours. Mm-hmm. Um, she was just with me. Oh, that's a good amount of time to like bond. Mm-hmm. I think the U.S. is a lot more medical based, and the U the U.K. is like midwives, so they're all like best practices for mothers and children and families. Versus the U.S. is like make sure this baby is okay. I mean, of course, they make sure the baby is okay and safe here, but everything's a lot more well. My experience, from my experience, mm. which one did you prefer? Like the emphasis on the child in the U.S. or the emphasis on the mother in the U.K. I really liked my birth experience in the U.S., but the U.K., I think I can appreciate it more because how many people can say they had like a natural painful birth? A lot of people really desire to have like no interventions. I basically could have delivered her at home. Like they didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I guess I can appreciate both experiences, but my U.S. experience was a lot smoother and mm-hmm. free. So. Yeah. I'm really interested about the significant differences from the private and public health system, because that's, I think, really what drove some of those key differences you were talking about. And from the U.S. perspective, you know, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast, a lot of the issues come with a privatized system. I mean, it's interesting to sort of see how different that worked for you with with regards to birthing, right? It's It was unexpected for me to hear that, to be honest. What was the most unexpected part? That there are no private rooms, that you just get stuck in a ward, that you have to wait until the last minute. And, you know, it seems that because you didn't wait till the last minute like they expected you to, that that also decreased your care during your experience there. But like where the norm is in the UK for midwives to be there, somehow I just would have expected that level of care to be there regardless because there's a midwife Mm -hmm. involved. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's curious to see how are different, I guess, like cultural focuses with regards to birthing impact that. 
and also how the healthcare system really impacts that. I think the fact that it's privatized is why so many Americans are comfortable with it because Mm -hmm. like you said, it sometimes feels like the red carpet's rolled out for you if you have the money for it. If you have the right insurance, you get really premium care. Whereas I guess in the UK, because everybody's getting serviced by the same system, that really changes the the experience. Mm-hmm. Like you can't walk in feeling entitled mm-hmm. <laughs> in the UK, especially me as a foreigner. But the interesting thing is my first baby, he was delivered by a midwife as well. Oh. But I, I didn't know that. Oh. I went to Mercy, which is a lot of um, women choose to go to Mercy in Baltimore because they, I think it's been known for like great maternal care. So a lot of my friends did their prenatal care there as well. And the, cause I just happened to look at the birth certificate and I was reading like who delivered Alex. And one of my other friends was like, Oh, she delivered my other friend Bianca's baby. And she was supposed to l- deliver her baby as well, which was, I was, Alex was born in November, 2019. Her baby was due in March, but by March mercy had made it so midwives can no longer deliver babies in their hospital. Oh, uh. Oh, wow. who was with her through her whole pregnancy at Mercy could no longer deliver as of like February 2020. So her baby had to be delivered by a doctor. Mm-hmm. I also was doing research on paid maternity leave in the UK and they offer that. In the US, you, it's not guaranteed that you have paid maternity leave. Like, is that something you took advantage of or do you think that's something helpful? Oh, so I didn't actually get to take advantage of that because I didn't work here. But a lot of my mother friends here they, they all take a year off uh, wow. first year, but you only get paid your full pay for the first four weeks. And then after that, you get paid something like, I think they said like a hundred something pounds per week, mm-hmm. which is basically nothing. They were just like, imagine you trying to pay your bills with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were just saying like, it's something, but it's really nothing in comparison to like making real money. But I mean, they still take the year off. And then another thing that the UK, well, the Scottish government offers here is that Everybody is entitled to it's something called like a baby box. So it's basically to give everybody an equal start when you have a baby. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes with like a big box that is basically can convert into like a baby bassinet with the mattress and sheet. And oh, wow. it is like clothes, bibs, pads for like the mother, condoms, a thermometer. It's just like everything that you may need. Everything that you probably get a baby shower is in like the baby box from the Scottish government. Mm-hmm. And everybody's entitled to it. It's like no income gap, no income minimum or maximum. You also can get something called child benefit. Child benefit? Yeah. And it's not like welfare. It's just kind of like if you have a child, you can get child benefit, which is, I think, like seven pounds a week or nine pounds a week per child. So it's kind of like it can cover like pampers mm-hmm. and cover the price of like this random stuff that you may need for the child. But everybody can kind of get it. Mm-hmm. So I think at the end of the month, it's like 50 per child from the Scottish government. That's awesome. It sounds like the Scottish government makes it so that you have your best foot forward when you're a parent. Yeah. And also, like, we put Alex in nursery when he turned one. So put you can pay through the Scottish government and they'll, like, add to every pound you put in. They put in, like, 50p or something. So it'll, like, offset the cost of paying for nursery and daycare as well. And those those things don't exist in the U.S., right? I think it's a lot more stigmatized. Like you can get like a daycare voucher, but you have to be poor or mm-hmm. you have to be a single parent or a lot more stigmatized, I think. Okay. Do you feel like in the UK, knowing about those resources, the accessibility of those resources, 
was better. Like if thinking about the fact that there's already built in leave, there's built in child credit, there's built in baby box it already is like pretty advanced from, from my perspective in the U S and these things exist in the U S uh, but I feel like you have to ask around for them. Like they don't readily tell you about them. Uh, is that, is that true in your experience? I feel like no one told us. We just, like, I think after paying for nursery by ourselves, I think one of my friends asked me, like, you don't pay through the Scottish government website? And I was just like, no. Mm. So I kind of, you kind of have to hear it, hear about it through other people. Okay, so it's similar in that way. So it's, it's pretty similar. Yeah. I think the fact that it's just not stigmatized, like, you, you're not considered, like, oh, like, on welfare. Right, right. You help from the government for having a kid. But I think the biggest notable difference is the aftercare here, that every day someone comes to your house to see you, to like mm. take your temperature. And if you have like stitches, they like check your vaginal stitches and stuff. I didn't have to get stitched. So I think I ripped in the US and the UK, but in the US, of course, they stitched you up because they like to do every medical procedure possible. But in the U- mm-hmm. UK, they were just like, that'll heal on its own. So we're not going to put any stitches on it. But the fact that someone comes to your house every day, that was really helpful with breastfeeding. Because in the U- U.S., I wanted to breastfeed, but it was so hard. It was so painful. You kind of just need someone to, like, help you through that process. It was really painful. But having someone come to help you every day or call in to check on you every day was probably the biggest, like, game changer in helping me continue to breastfeed. But there's always someone in your house, like, every month to see the child. That's like a social worker coming to visit every month until the child is, what, like, in school age? Oh, and one more thing I would like to add about um, here in the UK, like a lot of like my mom friends who have kids the same age as my first son, they all were a part of like antenatal groups. Antenatal? Yeah. So we call everything prenatal, but they call it antenatal. Okay. So they all had these groups of like children that were due the same time as them. So everything was on NHS. So it would be like yoga classes and you would do everything with this group of women. So then when you had when you all had your children, you were connected to this group of women that you kind of went through your pregnancy with. Because mm-hmm. your midwife is servicing all of them. You all live in the same community. Basically, whatever your midwife is, is like a community midwife. So she services women in the same community. So she kind of connects you all and you do classes with them. But this, because of COVID, we didn't have any classes. So I kind of missed that experience, which is kind of like what the UK is known for is like your antenatal groups. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that kind of becomes your support when you have your children. That is a difference in the UK and the US. Yeah, that sounds beautiful to have like support like that throughout the whole pregnancy. And then afterwards, they could be like lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's nice. It sounds like the UK has a lot of support that they offer pregnant well, women. Scotland is like that. Scotland? Yeah, because I think England, I don't know if England and Wales are the same. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Scotland is very much public health driven. Mm-hmm. So we had two wonderful interviews, one with Shantae about her experiences giving birth in the UK and here in the US. And then we also spoke to Joelle and we spoke a little bit about her birthing center and how she plans to use it to divest from the medical system in terms of birthing. So both those two interviews are very interesting and something that we didn't really expect to happen, which is this trust and belief in the medical system and also the chance and the views of divesting. But when when we think about Black maternal health and the disparities in deaths and the rise in deaths, 
we have to remember that it all boils down to stress related to oppression and also just Black women just not being believed um, Mm -hmm. and them just receiving lackluster care during and after pregnancy. And how do we address it? Yeah, the the timeless question, which is, do we address racism and oppression within the system or outside of it? Mm-hmm. And it looks like Shantae has a lot of faith in the system. And it was just not what I expected, but it was very valid, you mm-hmm. know. But I'm very, very passionate about the path that Joyelle is is blazing here for divesting from the system. That stuff gets me really passionate because I feel like that's where a lot of the hope is. When I think about working within the system, I just think about all of the obstacles that come with working within the system. Think to myself, how how does that work? How do we do it? So uh, one way that I could work is Representative Lauren Underwood. She's a representative of Illinois in Congress, and she created a set of 12 bills to address maternal mortality in the U.S. And the whole act is called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act of 2021. And the Momnibus Act is made out of 12 different bills that target specific areas, including vaccinations, climate change, incarcerated moms, mental health, COVID-19, etc., And my question for you is, Kit, do you think that's enough? After reviewing the omnibus for a bit, do you think those targets are enough to improve our system to address maternal mortality? You know, I think the what stuck out for me the most in this act was number one, right? Like actually investing in the social determinants of health, where there's a lot of things that we don't account for that impact how Black mothers experience the birthing process within the system. My concern is like, how do you do that when we're looking at like housing, transportation and nutrition? Those things are impacted by all this other legislation and all this other systemically oppressive structures. Mm -hmm. How does one bill address that like this? You know, of course, this is just the outline of the bill right now. Like these are just Mm -hmm. like ideas that they're throwing around. I don't know what the concrete action is behind a lot of the these 12 points Mm -hmm. Um, but that was really interesting and I'd like to see more of that the community-based organizations that speaks to me almost directly of of stuff like uh Joelle's doing you know and I think it's so interesting to juxtapose the divesting with the changing within the system because it's like painting them as completely you know black and white options And we don't live in a black and white world. We live in a very gray world. So can we really jump from one to the other? Or does there have to be some sort of transition? And I think it could work together. Mm -hmm. I believe that it creates room to work together. For example, when you mention funding of community-based organizations, I think about Indigo Birthing and how Joelle's vision and her project in collaboration can be funded. My question, though, is in a country that really prioritizes profit and prior and looks at healthcare and practicing healthcare in a specific way, will they find the value mm-hmm. in initiatives such as Indigo Birthing exactly. offers this type of care? And you're right. Like when you think about addressing social determinants of health, um, I took a deeper dive into the bill. It seems to only focus on pregnant women and not really everyone else. 
even like thinking specifically about the maternal health and improving it in prisons, they mentioned incentivizing prisons not to shackle women while giving birth. (laughs) And I was like, why do you have to incentivize them? Why can't you just say don't shackle women while giving birth? Right. Like, why is that not just like a given? Yeah. You know, and why isn't there just a more comprehensive look at prison healthcare. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of just focusing on maternal prison healthcare. So I don't know. Are you a believer of a step in the right direction? (laughs) I mean, yeah, you know, like I'll take anything at this point. Like I'll take anything because I think that's important and it makes a significant difference in the lives of people that aren't me now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it, obviously. I wish that we could just like flip a page and things are different. Mm-hmm. Like we've like burned the institutions down and like recreated, you know, better ones, but that's yeah, just not how it like, works. Really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to do those kind of things. Yeah, it's really um, hard to do. It's yeah. really hard. So um, I think also maybe just a little bit more targeted language, the incentivizing prisons not to shackle women. That was pretty disappointing. Like just, no longer allow prisons to shackle women while giving birth, you know, or like incentivizing new different payment models. Or there was a section when they were looking at climate change and environmental risk factors on health. They wanted to examine the risk factors on the environmental risk factors during pregnancy and also mitigate the risk with air filtration systems and home weatherization. But I think, you know, maybe it should have been a little bit more focused to say we are going to tackle climate change as a whole in this country so that no woman will experience these risks. They also mm-hmm. wanted to look at like high risk environmental areas. And that was also interesting to me because in looking at those high-risk environmental areas, what are you going to do about it? Because that primarily is going to be women of color, specifically Black women who are living in these high-risk environmental areas. Are you going to try to make it a little bit more equitable? Are you going to address housing laws and address industries that make it so that these poor Black women are in these high-risk areas? I don't know. I I really appreciate Lauren Underwood. I've heard her speak and I understand that she's really passionate about Black maternal health in this country. And I'm really glad that these bills exist. I just would like to see a little bit more from our policymakers to make a little bit more targeted efforts in understanding oppression and understanding how many people don't have a choice in where they live and making a holistic change to our structures to address this maternal health crisis. But at the same time, I'm glad that we have people like Joelle who are creating alternatives for those who just aren't ready to feel as comfortable in the systems that we have right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Unfortunately, it's always going to take a lot more than just one bill that tackles mm-hmm. these you know, 12 areas to actually change anything because of how integrated our systems are with everything else. So... It's a step in the right direction, and I'm glad that there are options that exist like Joyelle's for folks who don't want to participate or aren't safe participating as as much as others. Yeah. So if our listeners want to hear more about the Omnibus Act, it's called the Black Maternal Health Omnibus Act of 2021. You can Google it. 
It's also part of the Black Maternal Health Caucus-Underwood.house.gov. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can visit their website and read the bills and the sponsors. They're pretty cool sponsors on there, like Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar, and others. And I'd love to hear about our listeners' ideas about this topic as well. I'm really curious to hear how people feel about divesting versus working within the institutions. So if you want to share your thoughts with us, please do. Thank you to our producer, Annette. And our behind-the-scenes team, Maya and Hannah. Thanks also to our amazing guests, Shantae and Joyelle. Please follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at healthclassuntold or by subscribing to our website, healthclassuntold.com. Feel free to send us your thoughts or voicemail. We would love to hear how you personally relate to what we discuss or your ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening. This has been Health Class, The Untold Lessons. Like, I think I'm really compassionate. You might not think so, but I am. (laughs) Ha ha ha!